Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. And hey, how about that new theme music? One of the most popular books of the European medieval world is barely read anymore. We will still read the Canterbury Tales, Beowulf, Le Mort d'Arthur, and your lit major friends might even bust out Piers Plowman now and then. But if you were to go to a library at the end of the 1300s or through the 1400s, you would probably find a book that was, then, way more popular than those titles we still read. A book that purported to be a description of the world. A guide to traveling in distant lands. A bestiary, an almanac of everything that was just off the horizon. I am not talking about Marco Polo. No, I'm talking about something far, far weirder and far, far less tethered to reality. A volume of medieval fantasy masquerading as a field guide called The Travels of Sir John Mandeville. Supposedly, the titular knight set out from England in the 1330s and embarked on a journey that would take him to the Middle East, Africa, and Asia, though, as it will become apparent, not a Middle East, not in Africa, and not in Asia that we would recognize here in reality. No, Mandeville's book is not really about actual real foreign lands. It's about what Europeans thought was just outside the bounds of their civilizations. It's about what's beyond that mountain range that marks the borders of the lands you know. It's about what medieval people thought the foreign looked like, in all of its mysterious, alluring, and intimidating unknown. But before I get to any of that, I think it's important to keep in mind how Mandeville and other Europeans in the 1300s viewed the globe. And yes, they did think it was a globe. They did not think the world was flat. That is a myth. But they would not have pictured the familiar continents that we now think of. No, instead, here is how somebody in the 1300s would have imagined the globe. Imagine a circle. The outer edge of that circle is surrounded by water. That is the Great Sea Oceanus. The top half of that circle, the top semicircle, is a large landmass, and that's Asia. On this map, east is up. East is where the sun comes from, so that makes sense. And the lower half, the western half, that is divided into two quarter circles. The lower left quarter circle, that's Europe. That's where Mandeville and his readers lived. The lower right quarter circle, that's Africa. Jerusalem sits right at the center of the world, and sometimes paradise, Eden, is at the eastern top. This map is sometimes called the TNO map, and if you Google TNO, you'll find plenty of examples. So for contemporary readers of John Mandeville, this text would have filled in the blank spaces on that map. Mandeville's travels would have told him all about what's in that top semicircle, Asia, and what's in that lower right quarter circle, Africa. Granted, it ended up filling them in with lots of things of dubious veracity, but still, it filled them in. It satisfied a curiosity, and I think that's one of the reasons why the book was so popular. The book begins with Mandeville introducing himself. Now, quick note on Mandeville. He may not have been and probably was not a real person. John Mandeville could have been and maybe was a pseudonym, but I'm going to get into that in two episodes. For now, I am just going to call... Whoever wrote this, Mandeville, and the author introduces himself thus. I, John Mandeville, knight, 
although I am unworthy, was born in England in the town of St. Albans and passed the sea in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1332, on Michaelmas, that is, September 29th, and have since been a long time overseas and have seen and gone through many kingdoms, lands, provinces, and isles. After that, Mandeville dips his toe into the unknown. At this point in time, Mandeville has not yet strayed into the truly alien. Rather, he's going to start his journey with the familiar alien. He's not going to go to Asia or Africa or India or unknown isles yet. Nope. The first bit of foreignness he's going to look at are the Greek Orthodox Christians. In the first few chapters, ease the reader into the foreignness of it all by describing the Greeks. Mandeville says that they're different, but they're really not that different. They're still European, they're still Christian, and differences between the Greeks and the people who live in England, well, they're there, but they're not gigantic. They are things like the following, something that gave your humble podcaster uh, a bit of pause. Quote, they, that is the Greeks, say we commit a deadly sin in shaving our beards, for they say that the beard is a symbol of manhood and the gift of God, and they who shave their beards do it only to appear well to the world and to please their wives. Unquote. As a beard haver, um, I would not say that shaving one is a deadly sin, but I have no problem with describing the beard as a symbol of manhood or a gift from God. But after a few, you know, fairly normal chapters about the Greeks and Constantinople and all that, the travels has its first really weird fantasy element. The first of many really weird fantasy elements. And it's stuff like this that made the book so danged popular back in its day. In chapter four, kind of out of nowhere, Mandeville starts in on a story about a dragon. Quote, and some say that in the Isle of Lango, that is one of the Greek isles, is the Lord's daughter in the form of a dragon, which is a hundred feet long, as men say. For I myself have not seen it. Folk there call her the lady of that island. She was changed thus into a dragon from a fair damsel by a goddess who is called Diana. And it is said that she shall remain like that until the time when a knight comes, who is so bold as to dare go and kiss her on the mouth. Then she will return into her own shape and be a woman, but she shall live only a little time afterwards. And it is not very long since the knight of Rhodes, a bold, capable fellow, said he would kiss her. He leapt on his horse and went to the castle and entered the vault where the dragon was lying. And she began to lift up her head against him, and he saw it in all its hideousness, and he ran away. The dragon followed and took the knight and carried him, despite his struggles, to a sea cliff, and cast him over that crag into the sea, and so that knight was lost. And the story continues, with other knights saying that they will go find a dragon, kiss the dragon, turn the dragon back into a lady... But, unfortunately, bad, horrible, dragon-related things keep happening to them. And this is hardly the last bit of oddness in the book. There is plenty more. There is so much. There are so many asides and so many one-off little one-paragraph things of off-the-wall stuff in the travels that if I were to quote every single fantasy thing, this episode, in fact, this in the next two episodes, would be way, way too long. Mandeville, in that first part of the book, describes finding the huge bones of a dead giant, a flying disembodied zombie head, 
And at one point, Mandeville claims that, you know, he got in pretty good with a local sultan, whom he became best buds with. And, he says, he would have arranged rich marriage for me with a great prince's daughter and given me many lordships if I had forsaken my faith and embraced theirs. But I did not want to. Oh, he was just happening all along on his journey, you know, passing all these monsters and weird stuff. He made friends with a king. He could have had a hot babe and lots of gold. But he didn't feel like abandoning his religion, because that is how awesome he was. And fans of mythology, or fans of the X-Men, they will also be pleased to see that Mandeville gives an account of one of the most well-known and iconic fantastic creatures out there, the Phoenix, which he claims lives in Egypt. He says, In Egypt also is a city that is called Heliopolis, which means the city of the sun. In this city is a temple, round like the temple of Jerusalem. The priest of that temple has a book in which is written the birth date of a bird that is called the phoenix, and there is only one in all the world. And this bird lives five hundred years, and at the end of the five hundredth year it comes to the temple and burns himself all to powder on the altar. And the priest of that temple, who from his book knew the time of the bird's coming, makes the altar ready, and lays on it diverse spices and sulfur, and twigs of the juniper tree, and other things that burn quickly. And then the bird comes and alights on the altar, and fans with his wings until the things mentioned be alight, and there he burns himself to ashes. On the morrow they find in the ashes as it were a worm. On the second day that worm has turned into a perfectly formed bird, And on the third day, it flies away from that place to where it normally lives. And so there is never more than one. And Mandeville, being a medieval Christian, of course, sees the Christ dying and resurrecting metaphor in the phoenix. Also in that first section of the book is a passage I found especially amusing. One where Mandeville claims that the pyramids of Egypt were for, in fact, storing grain. Now I shall tell you about Joseph's barns, which still exist in Egypt, beyond the River Nile, toward the desert made between Egypt and Africa. There are Joseph's barns, which were made to keep corn in for seven lean years, which were foretold in the seven dead ears of wheat, which King Pharaoh saw in a dream, as the first book of the Bible says. And they are made wonderfully, cleverly, of well-hewn stone. Two of them are marvelously high and broad, too. The remainder are not so big. Each one of them has a porch at the entrance. These same barns are now full of snakes, and outside many writings in diverse languages are to be seen. Some men say that they are the tombs of some great men in ancient times, but the common opinion is that they are the barns of Joseph, and they find that in their chronicles. And truly, it is not likely that they are tombs, since they are empty inside, and have porches and gates in front of them. And tombs ought not, in reason, be so high. American listeners might remember Republican presidential candidate Ben Carson embarrassing himself by saying that he thought the pyramids were giant grain silos rather than massive funerary monuments. That has been one of the uh, weirder gaffes of the current presidential campaign, but Carson didn't invent that particular misconception. That bit of pseudo-history has apparently been around for quite some time. After Egypt, Mandeville gets to the Holy Land, and the early middle part of the book about the Holy Land is ostensibly what the travels of Sir John Mandeville is all about. He is, ostensibly, writing a guide for potential pilgrims. But it reads like a fairly standard list of things to go see and do in and around Jerusalem, like the alleged sites of Jesus' birth, death, etc. And it's very list-like. 
Maybe it would have been thrilling reading for somebody in the 13 or 1400s who was really invested in the version of Christianity that was around back then, but for me, a secular modern reader, it was really the nadir of the book. And I'm not going to quote Mandeville's passages about Jerusalem at length or at all. They are about as exciting as some of the more lists-like biblical books, and they are not, I think, why the travels of Sir John Mandeville got so popular. Fortunately, though, after the Holy Land, things start to get weird. And that's where we're going next week. Oh yeah, we're doing a whole three-part series on one of the weirdest books of the medieval world. Next week, Mandeville ventures into the unknown, and things are gonna get bonkers. This is an ad-free podcast that exists because you decide it does. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com and sign up for a regular monthly donation. That would be excellent of you. Also, give us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us stars, words, many stars, nice words. That would also be excellent. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimes with Joe Streckert. Twitter, at Joe Streckert, joestreckert.tumblr.com. I'm great at naming my social media. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.